Have you ever had a falling out with someone so bad that you wished someone would just playfully peck at their ankles as they walk through the city, resulting in them no longer having the ability to walk? Try pigeons today! Welcome to episode 127 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown, environmental celebrity. <laughs> Normally I write the bad puns, but that wasn't me, I promise. Today we're talking about oysters, an appetizer half of us love, but none of us are bold enough to propose ordering for the table, right? We always see the oysters on the menu at a nice seafood restaurant, but we're in a group of ten and want to be sure we order an appetizer everyone likes, and next thing you know, we're munching on chips and guac filled with lifelong regret. If you're not in our half of the population, can you just grow up? Oysters are delicious. Who hurt you? Why are you afraid? Now, before I get into it, let me address the elephant in the room. We had a bit of a surprise hiatus there, and I wanted to fill you in. As you know, we've been partners with PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, for the last two and a half years. We've licensed our episodes to them, and the majority of our funding has come from those licensing agreements. Unfortunately, we just found out two weeks ago that Peril and Promise will no longer be able to fund us at the present moment. Long story, purely financial. We wanted to continue working with them, they wanted to continue working with us, and hopefully we can again sooner rather than later. That's both of our goals. What that means for us is we need to find new funding quickly. I've sent some cold emails to potential licensing partners, we're trying to do some networking, but... I really don't know what to expect. I obviously believe in what we're doing. I've seen with my own eyes how our content has reduced anxiety, reduced political polarization, brought new people into the climate conversation, and I certainly don't want that to end. I think we have a lot to offer any funding partner in that regard. What can you do to help? I always ask this, but join our Patreon. We've really got good bonus content on there, and every new patron goes such a long way toward helping us run our operation. Just so you know, I have yet to take a dime from the Sweaty Penguin in three and a half years. I hope that changes someday, but at this point, all of our funding has just gone toward production costs and primarily paying our team members to keep this thing running. If joining the Patreon isn't an option, leaving a five-star rating and review on your podcast platform, sharing us on social media, anything to help spread the word about us can help grow our audience, help us find new connections, so we really, really appreciate it. So, yeah, needed a little break there to start planning for next steps, kind of get my head around all this. It's a bit nerve-wracking, to be honest, but we're forging ahead for the time being, and we really hope to have good news as soon as possible. And with that, let's talk oysters. So in 375 BCE, Plato said, we are bound to our bodies like an oyster to its shell. It's not a philosophical revelation like the Onion monologue from the 2001 masterpiece Shrek, but the fact that something as unassuming as an oyster can provide inspiration and livelihoods to this many people is cause for conversation. Whether you like them, hate them, or even if you break out into horrific purple hives when you look at them, there is no denying that oysters are the biggest icon with two shells. 
well, the biggest icon after Ariel exposed herself in our Whales episode. According to the NOAA, the oyster industry produces $186 million and supports 1.7 million jobs in the U.S. each year. And as filter feeders, oysters play a key role in the global nitrogen cycle, a building block for life on Earth. But unfortunately, oyster populations are becoming seriously threatened, and not just by 65-plus swingers communities in central Florida. Today, we'll discuss why oysters matter, what challenges they face, and how we can best conserve them moving forward. But first, it's time for Oysters 101. Contrary to popular belief, oysters are not a nickname for exacerbated Florida Jews who react to every inconvenience with, Oi Gewalt, what a shanda! This deli won't give me a proper schmear. In reality, oysters are a type of mollusk, which is a soft-bodied, spineless creature. Other mollusks include squids, snails, and your mom. Yeah, that hiatus wasn't long enough. As subtitle bottom dwellers, oysters live in reefs of their own making, perpetually submerged underwater, often close to the shore. A defining characteristic of these animals is the fact that they are filter feeders. This means that they eat by pumping water through their gills. Small particles of plankton, algae, and other materials get trapped in oysters' mucus as they travel through the water column before entering the oyster digestive tract. That's why Kate Middleton was inspired to start the hot new oyster diet by shoving algae up her nose. This week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Wally Fulweiler, Professor of Earth and Environment and Biology at my alma mater, Boston University. Dr. Fulweiler explained the filter feeding process to us in some more detail. So oysters, if you think about it, if you think about like ways to eat, right? You, we can like go out and like forage for our food or something. That's like one a mobile organism can do that. Or you can imagine being at a buffet, you know those I think it's like sushi restaurants that do this, right? Where they they the little plates move by you and you can grab the plates that you like off the conveyor belt. <laughs> I don't know. I remember one magical restaurant I loved that did that. And if you think oysters are kind of like that, like they sit in the water and they're filtering because they're filter feeders. That's how they get all their food. And basically their, their buffet moves past them with the water and they're just like grabbing what they want out of it. And so I think because they can't move. So once they're settled, you know, they stick there and they build these reefs or they glom onto pilings or something. Um, that's, that's like the best way for them to find their food is to simply filter all that water and then, then grab what they need out of it. Because these animals are sessile, meaning they cannot move on their own, it makes sense that this is how they get their food. And though it seems like small particles of plankton and algae wouldn't make for a very satisfying diet, the constant flow and accumulation of these particles to the oysters adds up. Oysters and oyster reefs provide a variety of ecosystem services and environmental benefits. For one, oysters benefit the environment simply by eating. I wish I was an oyster so my talent for housing 32 hot wings could finally get recognized in scientific circles. Here's Dr. Fulweiler describing some of the benefits of this filter feeding process. And when I say they're magical creatures, I say that because they can filter one adult oyster, can filter about 50 gallons. Of water per day, which is a, which is like 
really an enormous amount of water. If you think about that, imagine drinking like a gallon of milk, right? Doing that 50 times over in a day is, is an amazing amount of water to, to process. And why that's so important um, is because they're able to take things that are in the water column, like carbon or, or other types of particulates, and then put them into their body. And they're really neat. They're like these intuitive eaters where if they want to eat them, they'll process them, make feces that deposits to the bottom, to the sediments. That's helpful because it's like a little granola bar basically for the bacteria there. And it can stimulate all of these important biogeochemical processes or nutrient cycling processes and supply food for other organisms as well as, as for bacteria. These biogeochemical cycles that Dr. Fulweiler is speaking about are essential for living matter to exist. Quick life science review, biogeochemical cycles identify the continuous life cycles of different elements as they travel through different states and aquatic, terrestrial, and atmospheric environments. There are different cycles for different elements, but essentially, these processes transform nutrients into new forms usable by different organisms. Some of the most important elements that go through these cycles include nitrogen and carbon, two cycles in which oysters play a significant role. Think of them as the DIY enthusiasts of the sea, but with fewer unplanned trips to the hospital. In terms of the nitrogen cycle, oysters are especially critical players. On Earth, nitrogen naturally exists in several different forms, including nitrogen gas, or N2, nitrate, nitrite, ammonia, and the liquid nitrogen they use on Iron Chef America to make fancy ice cream, and nitrogen cycles through these different forms. Oysters stimulate a part of that process called denitrification which refers to the transformation of solid forms of nitrogen, like nitrate and nitrite, into gaseous forms of nitrogen, like nitrous oxide and N2. Denitrification is really important in regulating the amount of solid forms of nitrogen in ecosystems. We don't have an issue of too much nitrogen in the air, as it makes up such a significant majority of our atmosphere, but we do struggle when there's extra solid nitrogen in the environment, as you might remember from our phytoplankton episode. And if not, here's Dr. Fulweiler to explain. All it means is that there are, it stimulates this natural filtering process of nitrogen where the microbes in the sediment, but also associated with the oyster themselves, like on their bodies or inside their guts, can take nitrogen and turn it in from this dissolved phase in the water to a gas phase that can go up to our atmosphere. And you might remember that our atmosphere is roughly like 80% N2. And so we call that big pool of nitrogen in our atmosphere, unreactive nitrogen. And the reason that's so important is because humans dump nitrogen into coastal systems all the time, through fertilizer or sewage, runoff, that kind of thing. And that can be really bad because it can stimulate phytoplankton blooms. And when they die and decompose, those um, the bacteria that are doing that decomposition take all the oxygen out of the water column, leading to low oxygen or no oxygen conditions. And dead zones like the Gulf of Mexico is a good example in the summer, usually. But they happen um, more locally as well. These algal blooms are super important, or rather destructive, to aquatic ecosystems. When algae die, the process of decomposition uses a bunch of oxygen. This lowers the level of oxygen in the surrounding water, and when oxygen levels are too low, most species cannot survive. 
We're only left with the David Blaines of the ocean, and let's be real, that should never be the goal of natural selection. Not only are these dead zones harmful for oysters themselves, but when they cause mass death of other organisms, oysters can no longer filter feed, get nutrients, or survive to provide their usual ecosystem services. It's as if Darth Vader was a Jedi choking the ocean. Thankfully, Anakin hates the beach. I don't like sand. It's coarse, rough, and irritating, and it gets everywhere. I couldn't agree more, Daddy Skywalker. Often, these algal blooms are caused when human activity adds excess nitrogen to aquatic ecosystems. There are a bunch of sources of nitrogen runoff pollution, including agriculture, stormwater, wastewater, and household products that are disposed improperly. How exactly does this occur? Well, in terms of agricultural waste, stormwater, and wastewater, natural materials like feces and other organic byproducts contain high levels of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. That's why Kate Middleton was inspired to start the all-feces diet. Rake in that cash, girl! Those byproducts can run off into waterways and infiltrate aquatic ecosystems. Excess fertilizer from agriculture can also run off into nearby water, and these products are especially high in nutrients since their job is to literally feed plants. So the high levels of nutrients in these inorganic products can seriously affect oyster reefs and other aquatic life. This is why oysters' natural denitrification process is so important for themselves, the ecosystems they inhabit, and the other species, including humans, who rely on the nitrogen cycle for their ecosystem services. Another aspect of the biogeochemical cycles that oysters contribute to is providing nutrients for other organisms to thrive off of. After oysters eat and, uh, powder their noses, they deposit nutrient-rich feces into the environment, which serves as a food source for other organisms. Oysters also release a substance called pseudo-feces, which is essentially the waste byproduct of whatever materials an oyster filter fed on, but didn't or couldn't digest as food. This material, too, provides nutrients for other organisms. Fun fact, I went to detention in 8th grade for leaving prank pseudo-feces in the girls' bathroom. By going through this filtration process... Oysters clear the water of all the particles floating around, while still ridding themselves of whatever materials they don't like. It's a win-win. Like when your toddler won't eat chicken nuggets, so you get free girl dinner. Girl dinner! Oh, girl dinner! With clear, clean water, photosynthetic organisms like seagrass can grow better since they have more access to sunlight. Who knew going to the bathroom could have such positive effects? To save the ocean, we could just deposit 4 billion Taco Bell Doritos tacos into oyster reefs. Another regulating service that oysters provide is carbon sequestration. Oysters are self-reliant, unlike my needy ex-girlfriend who got mad whenever I was at work and couldn't text back. And that applies to two of them, so you can choose your own adventure. And the reason oysters are self-reliant, is they make their own shells using bicarbonate and calcium. Bicarbonate is carbon dissolved in water, and it's a part of the carbon cycle. In oyster shells, 
carbon is stored as calcium carbonate. So oysters actively store carbon in their tissues and cells, keeping excess carbon out of the atmosphere. And let's be real, if oysters can build their own shells, I shouldn't have to respond to your text about Starbucks being out of cold brew within five seconds. In addition to actively sequestering carbon, oysters also do not add much carbon back into the environment as other animals do, giving them a pristine carbon footprint. As a form of animal protein, this makes oysters an incredibly sustainable food. As an aphrodisiac, they are also an environmentally conscious alternative to Viagra. We really were not ready to be making episodes again. Oyster reefs are also helpful to their natural environment. Oysters are born as larvae and settle under rocks, shells, etc., where they attach and grow. As immobile organisms, they actually form a type of habitat when several settle in one area. When all these calcium shells begin to fuse together, they form large reef structures, similar to coral reefs. Over time, other sessile or slow-moving organisms like anemones, mussels, and barnacles attach to them. Once this structure gets big enough, other sea life like anchovies, blue crab, herring, shrimp, striped bass, stone crab, and flounder can use oyster reefs as nurseries for their offspring. What would they do if they didn't have access to oyster reefs? They'd flounder, wouldn't they? I'm sorry, I'm still rusty. We'll get it back. And lastly, oyster reefs in coastal areas can also absorb the impact of incoming waves, tides, and storm surges. This protects ecosystems like estuaries and salt marshes and prevents coastal erosion. They can also help with storm surge mitigation, right, because they can absorb that incoming wave. So that's another, they can sort of be be restored like along salt marshes or in different areas of an estuary, let's say, to try to like lessen that um, impact from storm surge. They also, it seems, and this is like a newer thing, area of work that's coming out of different labs, but because they can improve water quality and increase the amount of light that is available and they can increase then the, um, the area that seagrasses can grow so that essentially they can help make space for other organisms, other photosynthetic organisms to grow which is a big benefit. And then oyster reefs also are like home and habitat for lots of other key species that we care about. And so I think when we start to actually anecdotally, I've talked to oyster farmers who say that they see increased diversity around their oyster farms as well, in terms of like sea bass, for example, that like are there throughout the summer and stuff because they know it's like a protected food source essentially for them. And if oysters fusing together is so awesome, I'd say that presents a strong case for another multi-organism habitat, the human centipede. Oysters also help the economy. They really embody the Swedish pop sensation ABBA, money, 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 must be funny. But it's true. For one, oysters do a lot of important work for free. For instance, instead of us having to spend money on mitigating problems of excess nutrients in water, carbon sequestration, improving water quality, etc., oysters naturally and reliably provide these benefits. That said, the oyster union is in the process of organizing, so hopefully they get better pay soon. Oysters can also create value through commercial industries. 
Oyster farms can create thousands of jobs, especially in coastal areas. A great example is the eastern oyster, which is primarily farmed in the Gulf of Mexico and the Chesapeake Bay. States like Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida benefit economically from this type of oyster. Ah, Florida, always last and never once made fun of on this podcast. We would never. And on the west coast of the United States, the Pacific oyster is used for aquaculture or oyster farms in states like Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. Oyster aquacultures in these areas not only provide jobs, but also provide all the ecosystem benefits and services that come with their filter-feeding, denitrifying, pseudo-feces-ing ways. Oysters are also harvested for their pearls in the jewelry industry. Legend says if you put an oyster up to your ear, you can hear Harry Styles. Pearls are naturally produced when an irritant enters an oyster's shell, and the oyster responds by coating it with nacre, the same material that gives the inner part of an oyster's shell its shine. Which is healthier than how I deal with irritating things, ignore it, and hope it doesn't come up in therapy. But only one in every 10,000 pearl oysters produce pearls naturally, a success rate almost as bad as Tinder dates. However, researchers have found a way to artificially produce pearls through a process called grafting. This involves surgically inserting a shell bead into an oyster's tissue to trigger the oyster's irritant response and produce a pearl. It's worth noting there are ethical questions that come from this process, as it can harm the oyster, so we'll see if demand for pearls continues to stay this high as people gain that information, but in the meantime, it is another oyster moneymaker. And if we combine all these oyster benefits, that combines to the nearly $200 million in yearly revenue that we mentioned at the top of the episode. That's a lot of shucking oysters. Okay, I promise, that's the worst pun we will keep in the script. Well, actually, I shouldn't make that promise. Well, we'll see. Unfortunately, oysters are under threat. Today, many of these are linked to climate change and its associated effects, but oysters have actually been threatened for over 250 years. That's right, oysters have been threatened even longer than Cosette and Marius's relationship. Seriously, Eponine, can you stop being a drama queen about a little drop of rain and let them be happy? There are plenty of other fish in the sea. No? You're gonna die? Yeah, that checks out. But it's true. Throughout history... Over-harvesting was a major issue for oysters, and in large part was the initial cause of its decline. Prior to European colonization around the 1600s, oyster reefs were abundant in the Chesapeake Bay, as well as other regions of North America. However, as colonists arrived, they began to remove oyster reefs because they were, quote, navigational hazards. Personally, I think the Brits were driving on the wrong side of the bay. Later in the 1850s, oyster harvesting began to take off. Fishermen introduced large nets that are pulled along the ocean floor, and this machinery decimated not only the oyster reefs, but also other habitats by the coastal ocean floor. 
And by the 1880s, that oyster harvesting grew exponentially, as the oyster industry became prominent in the U.S. economy. Sadly, oyster population numbers never recovered to what they were pre-colonization. It's too bad they couldn't just copy wide-leg genes and come back every 15 to 20 years. In Japan, there was similar damage, but instead of harvesting them for food, people harvested oysters for pearls. And coming into the last few decades with already decimated populations, it's only made matters worse as oysters have had to contend with climate change. For one, climate change impacts ocean salinity, or the amount of saltiness in the water. Which is fair. I mean, I'd be salty too if someone turned up the thermostat and when I complained, they started throwing plastic bottles at me. In all seriousness, climate change impacts salinity for a few reasons. One, warmer temperatures lead to more evaporation, which leaves salt behind. Obviously, that water comes back down as rain or snow, or that gross slush that covers every winter street, but it doesn't rain back down in the same spot it evaporated from. That means some parts of the ocean could get saltier, while other parts get fresher. Obviously, that's a natural process, but one that climate change intensifies. Two, as glaciers melt in Antarctica and Greenland, that sends new freshwater into the ocean as well. And three, there are important circulations in our ocean that transport freshwater and saltwater around the world, and those circulations rely on the fact that saltwater is denser than freshwater, so it sinks and that propels the currents. But when that balance is disrupted, these currents can slow down. And we're actually seeing that process play out, something we'll discuss a little bit more next week, actually. What does that mean for oysters? Well, changes in ocean salinity can actually threaten oyster survivability. On one hand, increased salinity can harm oysters since it can reduce river inflow into estuaries or other habitats where oysters may live. As river flow decreases, so does nutrient flow throughout the ecosystem, an impact nearly as catastrophic as a tater tot shortage on a college campus. Without nutrients, filter feeders like oysters do not get the food they need to survive. As a result, they then stop performing biogeochemical cycles that are so important to their ecosystems. On the flip side, some species of oysters, like those in the Gulf of Mexico near the Mississippi River Delta, rely on saltier waters. When salinity becomes too low, oysters have a hard time surviving in such conditions they aren't used to. For example, when climate-induced extreme rain and snow hit the Midwest in 2020, it swelled the Mississippi River levels so high that excess river water was deposited into the Gulf of Mexico, and the salinity of the coastal ecosystem decreased dramatically. According to Debbie Fountain, an oyster farmer in the Gulf of Mexico, the salinity of her oyster farms dropped to two parts per thousand, which is too low for oysters to survive. In the wake of this disruption, she lost 14,000 oysters, which accounted for 100% of her aquaculture operation, which is devastating. The only time I lost 100% of anything is when I lost my dignity after begging a girl who I had a nice first date with, but then it kind of fizzled to come back to me. Note to our listeners, the boombox outside her window strategy is useless if she's deaf. 
According to Melissa Martin, an author, chef, and restaurant owner based in New Orleans, this issue means more than just losing an ecosystem engineer and a yummy food. What we do here is try to give people a meal that they would have at my grandmother's house or my mom's house, serving the food that I grew up eating. I get worried when I peer into the future about running a restaurant. I won't be running a restaurant based on um, seafood from other places. I will always be running a restaurant based on what I could get here. And that may mean that one day that I'm not a seafood restaurant. Um, and that's a really sad thought, but um, that's kind of the reality. Melissa founded the Mosquito Supper Club in New Orleans, and according to her, there's a cultural aspect to this, too. I'm not from Louisiana, so I wouldn't have known that. The closest I've gotten to that feeling was a trip to Maine, where I was in a group and had to awkwardly beg to get some oysters for the table, which made for a frustrating interaction, but a great intro to this podcast. But to hear her disappointment and her concern that she may not even be a local seafood restaurant one day is truly moving and goes to show that even on top of all that immense monetary value we placed on oysters, there also exists a portion that can't be measured in dollars. Oysters are also threatened by another climate change byproduct, ocean acidification. When water absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, the CO2 and H2O react to form carbonic acid, or H2CO3. Which is surprising, because I was certain if you combine water and carbon dioxide, you get club soda. Like, isn't that what my soda stream does? Is climate change just one giant soda stream? And if so, why are the oysters complaining? That sounds awesome. So okay, we get carbonic acid, right? And then carbonic acid breaks down into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. When bicarbonate exists in the water, it lowers the pH, or makes the water more acidic. When the water is more acidic, it becomes harder for oysters to build strong shells, which can make them more vulnerable to predators and disease, and can make it harder for them to reproduce. You know, if they have trouble getting hard. In fact, oysters are expected to grow 10% less shell by the end of the century. And before you say 10% is insignificant, try arguing with George Costanza after he gets out of the pool. The more acidic water also degrades calcium carbonate, which is the primary material that makes up oysters and other shellfishes' shells. This makes it even more difficult to retain shells they already may have. But while excess carbon dioxide is contributing to general ocean acidification, perhaps an even bigger driver is the nutrient influx introduced by human activity. As we've discussed, when nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus run off into waterways, they spur algal blooms. When the algae eventually die, their decomposition not only uses oxygen, but also produces a large amount of carbon dioxide. That, too, is a problem. The other sort of um, angle with climate change is this idea of ocean acidification, where um, the pH of the water is declining. In the open ocean, that's driven by carbon dioxide emissions. In the coastal areas, there's a, there's a little bit of that, but it's primarily driven by that excess nitrogen I, I talked about coming in and then causing all those big phytoplankton blooms. And when you also, when they decompose, not only do you get low oxygen, but you also typically get a, a drop in pH as well, because you've made essentially so much CO2 in the water from that decomposition process. And there's a lot of work there, a lot of work out there showing that 
shellfish and oysters included, their larvae don't always do well in those conditions. Um, so the little, those little baby shells basically can't, can't deal with that. Ocean acidification really makes things get a little rocky horror for oysters. A 2018 Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences study actually found a link between ocean acidification and oyster sex change in the New Zealand rock oyster. Researchers counted 16% more females than males after one reproductive cycle. This could limit the number of reproductive pairs, thus limiting genetic diversity, resistance, and resilience within these communities of oysters. I mean, a population dominated by females? Who's gonna think about the Roman Empire on a daily basis for literally no reason? Side note, if you know the trend I'm talking about, I have not thought about the Roman Empire since middle school and am just as confused as everyone else. The only things I think about daily are the status of Mark Andrews' hamstring, whether or not my friends still like me or if they blocked me on Instagram, and of course, the game. Another issue is oysters can also get sick. At least that's what they told the school nurse when they didn't want to swim the mile in oyster school. Dermo disease is a parasite that can slow growth rates, cause developmental defects, and even lead to death in oysters. MSX disease is another common oyster disease that often enters the organism through its gills and typically leads to death. And as water salinity and temperature fluctuate due to global warming, these ailments are likely to become even bigger issues. Aside from climate change, other environmental issues are also affecting oysters on a large scale. We talked about algal blooms and how those create these oxygen-free areas called dead zones. These dead zones are also caused by amateur improv shows. Dead zones are bad in general, especially when your friend pressures you to attend their show, but they do specifically harm oyster larvae. While grown oysters can continue filtering the excess nutrients in the water and ideally help prevent dead zones from forming, oyster larvae cannot do that and may not be able to survive as a result. Worst of all, the larvae are unable to throw out a wacky location for mediocre jokes. Do oysters need to wave their adorably small white flags? Of course not. In our next segment, we'll discuss how we can mitigate some of these environmental threats, protect oysters directly, and allow scientists to focus on the far more important endeavor of watching me absolutely demolish three dozen mango habanero chicken wings. Do you seem to be confused by the birds aren't real rhetoric? I mean, who is pooping on all these statues, robots? Your neighbor Mike? It's not me. Have an ex-bestie you want to seek revenge on? Need someone to poop all over their car, in their hair, on their first edition of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone which they stole from you? Call up the pigeon services today. I know what you're thinking. How do I call up a pigeon? Do they have a phone? Are all the pigeons on the same family plan? That's none of your business, actually. Do you want someone pooped on or not? Pigeons, the hitmen of the future. So where do we go from here? First off, several of the issues affecting oysters are directly linked to climate change, so addressing climate change is an important solution. Let's raise the anchor and set sail because I'm about to become Captain Obvious. 
As you know, we have many, many episodes discussing climate solutions, though, so I'll leave you to check those out. Another option is addressing excess nutrient runoff. Sure, nitro is fun in a Tokyo Drift sense, but we can pay better attention to where nitrogen-rich materials are going. We can prevent animal waste from running off and block this waste from entering waterways. Farmers can also plant cover crops throughout the year. When different plants are planted at different times throughout the year in the same area of land, soil is less likely to erode and run off, the soil will be higher quality with each crop rotation, and you may not even need fertilizer if you integrate the right mix of crops. Besides, who wants to only grow one thing? Unless that one thing is dill pickle kettle chips, I feel like a little rotation might be fun. Farmers can also mitigate nitrification by being careful and applying the correct amount of fertilizer to crops. Obviously, that's a more labor-intensive process, but it does save money and resources with regard to the fertilizer itself and prevents excess nutrient runoff since all the fertilizer will actually be used on the land. At an individual level, that can also include using the right fertilizers in the right quantities to reduce nutrient pollution, planting native plants in your garden, and properly disposing of pet waste, which prevents nutrients from said waste from entering waterways. And no, proper disposal does not include dropping flaming bags of corgi poop on your neighbor's lawn, even if they didn't invite you to the block party. How about solutions for oysters more directly? One option is implementing aquacultures. So, yeah, I think, you know, in um, if I was like going to look at a crystal ball, I, I don't feel like natural oyster reefs are going to be coming back on their own, right? We really, humans really need to get in there and do some of that work, either through restoring them or or through or through aquaculture, which I think is a is potentially a, a win-win in the sense that you bring the oysters back, they provide all those ecosystem services, and they're also providing, you know, jobs and economic security for coastal communities and Humans are part of the system, and I, I think we have to figure out a way that we can all kind of work work within that system. And I think oyster aquaculture is, is, one, is one way forward there. Aquacultures, in the context of oysters, are essentially oyster farms. They are basically small cages with several oysters inside. They are then moved around frequently so the oysters can access different nutrients and food to filter in different areas of the water column. Honestly, I would get in a cage too if it meant free transportation and food. That sounds a lot easier than comparing prices at Vons. These oyster aquacultures provide several benefits. They turbocharge all of the ecosystem services that oysters and oyster reefs already provide. They also bring the ecosystem benefits of the oyster industry. As of 2021, oyster aquaculture in North Carolina alone was a $30 million industry and provided thousands of jobs. Estimates made in 2019 predict that the oyster farming industry provides around 16,000 direct and indirect jobs in the U.S. That's a pretty good stat line. I mean, that's like the Tyreek Hill and Cowboys defense of conservation solutions. Though oyster aquacultures are already thriving environmentally and economically in several regions of the U.S., there are also opportunities to implement more. For example, though Pacific oyster aquacultures are already being implemented in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest, more could be implemented along the California coast. The Pacific oyster can withstand ocean temperatures ranging from 46 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, which is ironically my range too. 
I think we'd get along pretty well if we both love sweatshirt season and share the hot take that 73 degrees is disgustingly hot. But ocean temperatures from the southernmost to northernmost cities of California remain relatively stable and low throughout the year, mostly within the temperature range that the Pacific oyster can withstand. If aquacultures were introduced in these areas, the coastal ecosystems could benefit from all the environmental benefits and ecosystem services that oysters provide. Besides using aquaculture as a means of oyster farming, there could also be more deliberate conservation or restoration strategies. For example, in the Chesapeake Bay, the Marylanders Grow Oysters program aims to protect young oysters by setting up cages with oysters in them where the organisms live for the first year of life. Why every solution involves putting oysters in cages, I don't know. I guess that's what inspired Kate Middleton's latest diet, Cage-Free Oysters. For only $37.99 a pop, you can get free-range organic oysters. There's a solution for ya. But back to Maryland, homeowners actually place these cages at the end of their docks, and the program puts the oysters into different sanctuaries once the oysters have developed sufficiently. This program currently does not provide any economic reward to individuals who participate, but if a program like this were successful, I could imagine that being a next step. That could be funded privately, publicly, or some sort of partnership. But whether it's homeowners volunteering or making some sweet, sweet oyster money, it certainly makes a lot of sense for people to be actively involved in an ecological process that protects their coastline and their communities. And that goes to another point Dr. Fulweiler made in our interview, which is increasing awareness about these issues. And I think our understanding of how that all works is based very much on a, a certain group of people who have lots of money, and then they can buy the fancy equipment, and then they can go answer the questions, right? And it's like a positive feedback loop. But it means that there's lots of other people who haven't had that opportunity to ask the questions that they might have or study the ecosystem that they might want to study. And so if we can lower that entry point, basically, not use technology as a gatekeeper, I think we might get a better understanding of how ecosystems work and we may be able to get you know, more voices and ideas to the table. And so I'm really excited about those projects, trying to figure out how to, how to get technology, make it cheaper, more robust, and into the hands of more people. Be it in the academic world, like Dr. Fulweiler discusses, or within coastal communities, like some of these conservation efforts can do, it certainly can't hurt to educate. We can even make a trade-off. Oysters teach us about denitrification, and we teach them about Nathan for you. I mean, you know oysters would love some tasteful cringe comedy. How about restoration? Another example in that vein is the Billion Oyster Project of New York's Hudson River Estuary, which recovers oyster shells and implements healthy oysters into oyster reef habitats. Being in New York, the habitat is actually a six-floor walk-up to a broom closet. The project is largely involved in educational outreach to help both the oysters and school children and young adults in spreading awareness and increasing environmental engagement. Unfortunately, projects like these require funding, and oysters can't exactly stare longingly into a camera to compel people to donate. Even we couldn't pull that off, and you know we can turn anything into a Sarah McLaughlin ad. I'm working on it, though. Just give me some time to superglue googly eyes on every oyster in the Hudson River. That may take a while, though, but what would take less time is calculating out the costs and benefits of doing these programs versus not doing them. 
Again, oysters provide a lot of economic benefit, so it may be in the best interest of policymakers to implement programs like these rather than face extra costs down the line. Now you may be wondering, if oysters are under threat, should we still be eating them? And I'm pleased to say that that seems to be a yes, and an emphatic one, not a we-should-totally-grab-lunch-next-week one. <laughs> People can eat more oysters, absolutely. They are a great source of protein, and unlike chicken or beef, they do not have carbon emissions associated with them. You know, we all eat, like, way too much protein, not being judgmental. Obviously, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you're, you're not, but a lot of us eat way too much um, animal protein. And that comes with a large greenhouse gas footprint. Um, and if you change some of that to eat oysters, <laughs> they're, they're protein-packed, and they have basically like a non-existent greenhouse gas footprint. Um, if you compare it to like beef or pork or chicken, they're like less than half a percent of greenhouse gas emissions compared to any of those other protein sources. And a couple of years ago, we did this you know, back-of-the-envelope calculation and found that if, you, if the U.S. population switched just 10% of their protein diet to oysters, it would be the equivalent of move, um, removing almost 11 million cars off the road each year. So it would be a substantial footprint change. You all know I'm never the food police on here. I love grilling and eating meat. But oysters are truly the golden child when it comes to animal protein. I mean, it's them and fingernails. PSA, don't bite your nails, guys. Unless you dip them in cocktail sauce first. <laughs> I know it's overwhelming to think these issues affecting large swaths of the ocean need to be fixed to protect our oysters, but between conservation and restoration efforts, localized actions, and even the opportunities to address climate change globally, I think there's plenty of reason for optimism. Oysters help a lot of people, be it for food, jewelry, or their livelihoods. If we can recognize that and take steps to protect them, we'll have healthier oceans, more resilient coastlines, a stronger economy, and ensure the next time we look at the oyster population statistics, we won't have to say, oh shucks. Come on, you knew I'd squeeze one more in there. That wraps up episode 127 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. We really need it more than ever now. Please help us out. Clips today came from PBS NewsHour. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. And the oyster responds by coating it with nacre. Is that what it's called? Nacre sounds like a soccer player. Nacre? Naker? Oh, that's not even close. Thank you.